Good morning. I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus, our Savior. The last time I preached, I started looking at the book of Jonah. <clears throat> and we didn't make it very far in the book of Jonah. I'm trying to give uh, the background setting and uh, asked last time, what is the theme of Jonah? Could be a number of things. Is it repentance? The book of Jonah records one of the largest mass turning to God in history. Is the theme of Jonah the sovereignty of God? You see that throughout the book of Jonah, over and over. Is it Jonah's relationship with God? Or is it God's love and mercy for all people? William MacDonald said the book of Jonah is a commentary on Romans 3.29, which says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the God of the Gentiles. I'd like to say the answer is yes to all of the above. I think it is about all of those things. I'm not sure that I can narrow it down to one. <clears throat> Last time I preached, we saw how God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah didn't want to go. In the fourth, tap, fourth chapter of Jonah, in verse 2, he tells us he didn't want to go because he was afraid God would have mercy on Nineveh. And he didn't want that to happen. Jonah didn't think that people who gloated over torturing their enemies before they killed them deserved God's mercy. In short... God told Jonah to go 500 miles northeast over land, and Jonah bought a ticket to go over 2,000 miles west by sea. Jonah tried to run from God. I'm going to be looking at uh, most of the first chapter of Jonah this time. I'm going to be, you're familiar with the story. I'm going to be looking at it a couple verses at a time. I'd like to read verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. That word translated sent out, the original is actually hurled. It's to throw forcefully. It's the same word, to give you a feel for the word, it's the same word that is used in 1 Samuel 18, where Saul throws a spear at David, intending, it says, to pin him to the wall. That's the kind of throw we're talking about. It says God hurled a great wind. A great wind comes. Jonah refuses to go to a great city, so a great storm comes to him. Storms can help us realize how small we really are. Storms can help us realize how much I need God. In the mid-1990s, Ann and I were living on an island in the vast Black Sewell Reservoir in northwestern Ontario. 
It's a, Laxul is a crescent-shaped reservoir approximately 150 miles long. It's huge. Has approximately a surface area of 560 square miles. It's a lot of water. You can get lost real quick on Laxul. My father-in-law warned me when I moved there to carry a map with me when I go out on the boat and be very aware of my surroundings and the shapes of islands to find my way back to the village again. <clears throat> that was good advice. I was an ignorant southerner who had almost no experience with boats and lakes. And northwestern Ontario has lakes all over the place. About 50% of the area is covered with water. There's lakes, rivers, and they're all interconnected. My father-in-law kindly allowed us to use his 16-foot open boat with a 30-horse motor to travel the two and a half miles from where the gravel road ended, the landing, two and a half miles down the lake to the island where we lived. One of the first times that I drove the boat, I'm ashamed to tell you this, <laughs> one of the first times I drove the boat back to the landing on the mainland, um, I, I was pretty excited about this. Hey, cool, I get to drive this boat, haven't really done it before. I, so I kind of took it easy going out of the protected bay where village of Kijik Bay was and I go out around where I knew there was a, a really bad reef marked. And I went out around there being careful. The, the people that grew up on the island there just blow straight through the reef because they knew where there was a narrow gap in the reef. And they could blow right through. Well, I went out around and then I thought, hey, this is cool. I can open it up and roll. Well, I opened this thing up and thought, this is wonderful. Two and a half miles down the lake, the wind's blowing, and I'm approaching the landing. And there's a, they have a new dock stretching out. It's probably not quite as long as from here to the back of the room. It's a long dock sticking out. And uh, I'm approaching this dock, and my neighbors are out on the dock, along with several other couples. And they were carrying things down from their vehicle to put in the boats and take their groceries back. They're out on the dock and I'm coming up, not familiar with boats, remember? Well, I'm not slowing down. I didn't know it was time to slow down yet. And I noticed the people stopped what they were doing and they look at me coming and they scattered. I'm like, that's strange. Why are, they, why are people scattering? That's, well, I cut the throttle when I thought the timing was about right. <laughs> and uh, you know what happened. You don't just stop in water when you hit the brakes. You, uh, I cut the throttle, my wave caught up and pushed me forward and I slammed right into the dock. The front end of the boat went up onto the dock like this and the, the wave came from behind and partially swamped me. <laughs> and <clears throat> my next door neighbor, my Ojibwe neighbors who grew up handling a boat said, crazy white man doesn't know how to drive a boat. <laughs> they were standing around laughing, and, but they helped me out with uh, getting this thing off and, and uh, cleaned it out because these people grew up handling boats. They were used to it. About a year later, in August of 1995, we had plans to leave our responsibilities on Kijik Bay Island and celebrate our second wedding anniversary. Well, I wasn't going to let anything disturbed these plans and so the morning dawns that we were going to leave and it was very windy unusually windy 
And I remember I went out to look at the water before I walked out of the trailer, and I'm on the porch looking out front at the water, and I noticed there was whitecaps in the bay, like in the protected bay where we lived. There were whitecaps, big rollers. I thought, well, that's haven't seen that before. I did not know that this is a very bad sign for what the rest of the lake is like and what the main channel is like that I would have to go down to get to the landing. Ignorant me, I full steam ahead, we're going to do this. So we were at least smart enough that we geared up, we put on rain gear from head to toe, did the life jackets. I sent my wife into the front of the boat for ballast. <laughs> but I didn't know until later that uh, the locals, when they would go out on a, if it's a windy, a rough day, they, my neighbors would go, he kept a stack of rocks on the beach in front of his house, and he would go load a couple hundred pounds of rocks into the front of the boat to hold that front end down so the wind doesn't catch you. Because That's where the ride's rough, to <laughs> hold the front end down. I couldn't do it because she didn't want to drive, so. I'm in the back driving, she's up front, and we head out of the bay, and it was, it was rough, but we turned the corner. When I turned the point, the main force of the wind caught me, and there was huge rollers coming down the lake. I'd never seen anything like it. I never want to again, but I was angling into the wind, and as I cleared the point at the same time I was coming up over a wave, the wind just grabbed the front end and flipped it around like this. It became this close to just flipping over. And uh, wow, I realized suddenly I was out of my element. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't handle this. And so I did what you do. If things go wrong, well, you try again. And I went up over the next wave and it caught me again and just stood the boat right up on end and flipped it around. Thank the Lord we didn't go over backwards. I decided right then I wasn't trying the third wave, um, but I couldn't turn around. I was scared to go over a wave at all. So what I did, by this time, I'm in, I'm in the back praying and I'm hanging on to the motor with one hand, hanging on to the side of the boat with the other, Anne's up front, she's huddled on the floor and uh, she's shaking and crying. She has tears running down her face. And I'm feeling terrible because I'm thinking, Lord, here I brought my lovely wife out here, and I'm going to be the cause of her death. I was sure we weren't going to live. Um, the waves were so high. They were over six foot. They were so high that when I was down in the trough, by the way, I stayed down in the trough between the waves, and just we slowly worked our way a mile straight across the channel. Um, and if you look to the right or the left, you couldn't see anything but a wall of water. The, the waves were up higher than our heads. And I stayed in that trough until we beached it on the far side and just pulled it up into the bush where it was protected a bit. And we stayed there for a couple hours until the wind backed off uh, before we could go on. I remember that feeling of you are completely out of control. You realize you are facing forces that you can't do anything about.
and we were in comparing notes while we're huddled in the woods with the wind howling. Uh, by the way, during this whole time, I had a hard time seeing where I was going because there was so much spray coming off the top of the waves, windblown spray, that it was just like constant hard rain, but it wasn't raining. It, was a, it wasn't a rainy day. The next day, oh, we were comparing notes that when we pulled up in the, in the bush and both of us were praying and both expected we would die. We did not think we would get to the other side of the lake. The next day I was telling my boss about it, or the next week I guess, and he grew up on the island. He looked at me and he said, you were on the lake yesterday? He said, anyone who was on the lake yesterday wanted to die. <laughs> he couldn't believe that we made it across, especially with me not knowing what I was doing really. I realized that day how small I was compared to the forces of nature that God put into motion. It helped me realize I'm not really in control and I need the one who is. The storm Jonah faced was no natural storm. It was a direct act of God in response to his runaway prophet. I want to say that the storm God sent was an act of mercy to Jonah. God could have <coughs> hurled that great storm into the sea and let Jonah die in it. Jonah deserved it. He had rebelled. Or God could have simply withdrawn. Said, all right, fine. I'll ignore you. You don't listen. You want to take off. You don't want me around. Fine. I'll ignore you and I'll choose someone else for the job that I need done. But God didn't do that. God cared about Jonah. And the sailors, as we'll see, and the Ninevites. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. It may not be immediately apparent. It may be like being exposed to radiation affects our physical bodies. At first, it may not hurt, but silently, invisibly, radiation works in our bodies. You ever wondered why the radiologist or the tech who's doing an x-ray always walks out of the room? You ever had anyone stay in with you when they're doing an x-ray? They won't do it. They don't want to be exposed repeatedly to the radiation. They're willing to do an x-ray on you because you need it done. They need to know how to help you. But being exposed to radiation isn't good for you. So I may not see the, I may not feel immediately the effects of disobedience. When I disobey God, I will lose the peace of God. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's to let the peace of God be the umpire. It calls the shots. Sin will always harden my conscience and it will leave me defending myself and rationalizing. You know what it's like. I think you've been there too. Where 
I do something I know in my heart I shouldn't. You go ahead, and then I say, well, because of, and because of this, it was okay in my case. Wouldn't be okay for someone else, but, you know, no. When I disobey God, I will lose his peace. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I have earned is death. God's mercy is not giving me what I deserve, what I've earned. The gift of God is eternal life. You know, all of us will face storms in our lives. They may not be storms like Ann and I faced on Laxul. They can be spiritual, emotional. They may be in relationship with others. They may be financial. They may be health-related. But we will all face storms. Not all storms are a direct result of my sin, unlike Jonah. Not all storms are a direct result of my sin. The book of Job contradicts the idea that good people will have lives that always go well. And that if your life is not going well, it must be your fault. The book of Job contradicts that. Timothy Keller said, the Bible does not teach that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Some storms come to us because of others' sin. Have you been there? I think you have. Some storms come simply because we live in a fallen world. Whether the storm in our lives, the storms in our lives come because of our own sin or because of some other reason, God is able to use those storms for good for those who love him. Thinking of Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not saying it's going to be easy or pleasant, but it's saying that God can use those difficult circumstances in my life to bring about good things. If it turns me to him, it's a good thing. I'm going to read verses uh, 5 and 6, moving on here. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Here are the soldiers praying, crying out to their God. God had sent Jonah to a pagan city to tell them about him. And Jonah refuses and goes the opposite direction. And here are pagan sailors praying. 
but Jonah's sleeping. The sailors were afraid. They knew this was no ordinary storm. These men were familiar with storms at sea, but this wasn't ordinary. How could Jonah sleep through this? Desmond Alexander says the Hebrew word used describes a particularly deep sleep. So Jonah's in this really deep sleep. How can he sleep when even the sailors, who this is their, this is what they do every day, they're at sea. If they're terrified, how's Jonah sleeping? Allow me a little imagination here. The Bible doesn't tell us how Jonah was sleeping or exactly why. What was Jonah experiencing at this point? The Bible doesn't tell us, but if I were in Jonah's shoes, here's how I would have felt. Number one, probably exhausted. It's approximately 20 miles walk from where Jonah was to Joppa. And so he's probably just traveled 20 miles. And if you remember uh, from last time I preached, in, in verse 3 when it says Jonah got up, it's the original stresses. It was immediate. He wasn't messing around. He's up and going. He's going in the opposite direction. He's determined not to go to Nineveh. And so he, he has probably walked about 20 miles to the coast. He's probably exhausted. Second, if I were in Jonah's shoes, I think I would probably be angry that God wanted him to go to a people that he felt didn't deserve the opportunity to repent. He didn't want to see them repent. So he's probably angry. Third, he's guilty. He's just said no to his creator. He said no to the God whose prophet he is. God has worked, spoken to him, worked through him before. And he's a leader, and here he is running from God. He's probably feeling very guilty. And when we feel guilty, isn't our tendency to then withdraw from others? Jonah probably wanted to escape the reality of his situation, his disobedience to God. Whatever the case, I can't tell you for sure why Jonah or how Jonah could sleep, go into a deep sleep down in the hold of the ship, but he did. In 1 Kings 10.22, it tells us that during the time of Solomon, Solomon had ships of Tarshish, as they were called. They were at sea with Hiram, king of Tyre, which is Phoenicia, where Jonah was sailing from, with king of Tyre's ships. These ships went out. When they left port, they returned once every three years. So this isn't a short journey. This is a long journey. Some people believe that Tarshish was at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea in southern Spain. A lot of commentators believe that. There are a whole lot, there are a lot of others who disagree with that. That's where the bulk believe it was. I don't know where it is. I'll tell you that right away. But I suspect it was further away than that because if, it, if these are ships of Tarshish and they returned every three years, that was a very long journey. Also, in the same place, I'm not going to turn there for lack of time, but in 1 Kings 10, 22, we're also told what their cargo was. Um, gold, silver, apes, peacocks, 
Henry Morris says the, the first three could have come from Africa, but the fourth one, the peacocks, had to come from India. I didn't verify that. So anyway, they were on a long voyage. These ships were particularly strong and built to handle distance and rough seas. One Hebrew scholar said, Jonah is the only place in the Old Testament where a ship is described as having a lower deck and a covered upper deck, which the Hebrew makes very clear. Jonah must have felt pretty safe in a ship of Tarshish. Any sailor on a ship of Tarshish had plenty of experience as they were at sea for a long time. In verse 6, well, 5 tells us the sailors are afraid, and in verse 6, the captain comes to him and says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Oh, the irony. <laughs> Here is Jonah running from God. He's out to get away from him. And I believe God speaks to Jonah through the captain of the ship. Call on your God. You need God. We need your God to act. We need him to do something or we're going to die here in this water. So he is urged by a, a pagan ship captain to call on God, the God he's running from. That had to speak to his conscience. When those who say they follow God don't, Unbelievers notice. The people around us know if what we say and what we do don't match up. People are watching us every day. They want to know if we're for real. And I want to tell you, they hope that you're for real and that you do trust God completely, that you follow him no matter what. But when those who say they follow God don't, unbelievers will notice. Jonah's sin affected the sailors. The sailors unloaded their, their cargo out of the ship. To save the ship, they threw out the very reason they're at sea. That tells you how desperate they were. They wanted to lighten it so they don't ride as deep, as low in the water. They were fearing for their very lives. So Jonah's sin affected them. Does my sin affect other people? Does your sin affect other people? It does. Satan would like for us to think that it doesn't. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a little thing. Nobody will ever know. It doesn't affect anyone but you. Is that true? It's not. That is a lie. When I sin, it will affect me, and it will affect the people around me. It's unavoidable. Verses 7 and 8. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, what, and of what people are you? 
the lot falls on Jonah. God in his mercy is giving Jonah another opportunity. He's giving him an opportunity to confess. Yes, it's because of me. I'm running from my God. I believe God had that lot fall to Jonah. So he, he has the opportunity to confess and to take responsibility for his actions. Verse 9, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what? Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah said, I fear the Lord. Did Jonah fear God? Did Jonah really fear God? He's running from God. His actions don't match his words. I don't know how often I heard my dad say, your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. God must have revealed this to Jonah. How else could he confidently state that the sea will become calm for them if they throw him in? God had spoken to him before. I told you last time there was prophecies he had made that were fulfilled for Israel. Before this, and God had, God had spoken to him before, and apparently he did again and told him what to do. It's like God is saying, Jonah, will you trust me? You got yourself into this situation. Now will you trust me? Jonah admits his guilt, and he's willing to accept punishment. He's willing to die so the sailors wouldn't. And apparently, God told him to have the sailors throw him over, not to commit suicide, not just jump off the ship, but he is to have them throw him over. He is to give his life. He's be willing to give his life in exchange for theirs. Jonah is a type of Christ. He's willing to die so that, that others won't. The difference is Jonah was guilty. Jesus was innocent. And yet he came and took my place on the cross. He took your place, paid the price, the penalty for our sins. I'll probably look at that more next time, but basically Jonah here is putting himself into the hands of God. And he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Notice these men, these sailors are more concerned about Jonah than Jonah was concerned about them. 
in verse 5. In verse 5, Jonah's sleeping. These men are afraid for their lives, and Jonah's taken asleep. He's so self-absorbed and guilty and that he's down there sleeping. He doesn't care about these, so these sailors. But when they wake him up, and he realizes what is going on, and apparently God speaks to him, tells him what to do. And now these sailors are concerned about Jonah. They really put themselves out. It's getting worse and worse all the time, and they're trying to row, but it's not working. They see the ship's going to break up if they don't do something, and so they do throw him overboard. See that in the next verse, 15. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Those who know more about Hebrew than I do say that this wording doesn't do justice to what happened. Say it's very clear in the Hebrew that the sea stopped immediately. It reminds you of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said, peace, be still, and the storm just stopped. That's what happens here on the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. I don't know where they were. Wherever they were, it stopped just like that. I'm going to read Psalm 107, a couple verses there. Psalm 107. And read starting in verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wit's end. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble when he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Quite a description of what happens to people at sea. And they face forces far beyond their control. And they begin to realize how big God is, what God has created. Showing the sovereignty of God. God is in control, and he can stop the storm just like that. I want to notice verse 16 yet. Then the men, talking about the sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. The sailors made vows to God after their lives were spared. Unlike many others who make vows when they're in danger, and then when the danger is past, forget all about it or ignore what they have said while they were afraid. Unlike them, these sailors make vows after their lives are spared. They knew what they saw was the work of God. Notice the progression of the sailors' fear. First in verse five, well, 5, 10, and 16. First they feared the storm. Then they feared greatly in verse 10. And then in verse 16, they feared the Lord greatly. It's transferred from being afraid of the storm to reverencing God. Having a reverent fear of God. 
who is sovereign, who is in control of the winds, the ocean. The Lord spares those who turn to him in repentance. He spared the sailors. We'll see later, he spares Jonah and the Ninevites. But that's coming in the future. All of us have to deal with sin in our lives. All of us will face storms in life. What is important when we face the storms of life is who is with us. Notice that God was still with Jonah even when Jonah tried to run away. God kept reaching out to Jonah in mercy through the sailors, through the drawing of lots. And we'll see more ways as we go through the book of Jonah how God reaches out to Jonah. What is important is who I turn to in the storms of life. I can turn to God. I can ask him what caused the storm. He may or may not show me that. Sometimes I may never know. But I can ask him what he wants to work in me through the storm. Would you take your songs of faith and praise and turn to uh, number 420, please? Four hundred twenty. 